0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series in the book of Colossians, The True Christian. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled Christ's Supremacy in Salvation.
1: We live in a day in which many supposed followers of Jesus no longer belong to a local church. Unless you think I'm going to begin today with, you know, a blast of criticism against people like that, let me begin by saying, in many cases, I think I understand. I don't agree, but I understand. My heart's moved with compassion towards you. To those who've been deeply wounded, when you should have been guarded and protected and offered healing, I wish to say that unless a person has gone through the pain and deep disappointment that you have, they can't understand what caused you to leave the church. But even so, may I plead with you, find a loving group of genuine believers and be enclosed by them. And there are others who no longer belong to a church because the thing that they sought, which includes instruction in the faith, instruction in how to worship God properly, that's been subverted. And in some cases, politics and the newest philosophies have replaced the faith once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, people discuss environmentalism and gender equity issues and sensitivity to people of various viewpoints rather than discussing the gospel and the glorious news of the cross. Look, I understand and think that you've been betrayed in some local churches. And there are other places where, you know, seeker sensitivity and being relevant to the felt needs of the wider community has replaced the gospel. And I also understand your disappointment. But while the church often disappoints and often fails, and often fall short. Even so, the true church, the church that preaches the true gospel and teaches its members to live the true gospel, that is Christ's plan A for our lives. Jesus said that he had come to build his church, and to remove ourselves from the true church is to remove ourselves from Christ's agenda. There's no other way of putting it. Don't let hurts and disappointments and even the sins of others separate you from Christ and the bride that he came to create. Don't desert the church that Christ loves. But talking about a church in trouble, the Christian church in the ancient city of Colossae was very much in trouble. They, like so many churches today, were being tempted by a call to align themselves with exciting contemporary trends. And we might ask why. Well, in the contemporary world, many churches fear, above all things, the possibility that they might become irrelevant. You see, because irrelevance is the kiss of death. Whether it's a company that produces an irrelevant or outdated product, or a church that preaches an irrelevant and unneeded message, irrelevancy means death. And so how relevant is Christ? Christ. Can he stand up on his own, or do you have to prop him up with something else to make him palatable to the contemporary world? Well, we've been discussing the quoted hymn of Colossians chapter 1, and I've pointed out that this hymn, On the Supremacy of Christ, is most likely a song that Christians sang in their churches, and it, although it's quoted by Paul, seems likely that it was also written by Paul and that this hymn was to teach Christians to be confident in Christ. So, even as I did yesterday, let me quote the entire hymn from the entire passage, Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross." You know, when I quoted that passage of Scripture yesterday, I made note that if this truly was an ancient Christian hymn, well, it comes in two parts. The first half, the passage we studied yesterday, is the part that tells us of the supremacy of Christ, his lordship over the created order, as well as his equality with the Father. The second part of the hymn, and this is taken from verses 18 to 20, that part tells us the supremacy of Christ over redemption or over salvation and over the creation of the church. Good. So let's analyze these marvelous words. Notice there are three important statements that are made in the second stanza of this hymn, verse 18a, and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, the second part of that sentence is the statement that Paul has made before in his other letters. The church is the body of Christ. So, in that sense, the church of Jesus can't be separated from Jesus. The church is his body. Notice how often Paul has said that before. For instance, Romans 12:4 and 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And the idea in Romans, as well as Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 12, is that the church is called upon on earth to do the work of Christ. And here's why the analogy works so well. The members of any body have a variety of functions. So also Christ in wisdom has given various gifts to his church. Each of us are different from one another, yet each of us have given a complementary role. And we've been given a charge to corporately be and do the work of Christ. Oh, very good. That's standard teaching in Paul. But here in Colossians, the emphasis changes. Do you see it here? It's not that Paul or this hymn is denying that we are the body of Christ, but rather let's look at another very important truth. All of us unique individuals, and yet believers in Christ, have but one head. The head directs the body. The body doesn't direct the head. Let me use this in a contemporary fashion. You know, in the head is something called the pituitary gland. It's located in the base of the skull. It instructs the body to grow. Or to put it easier terms, the head directs the growth of the body. But not only its growth, but also directs the movements, the interactions with the members of the body. And for this reason, we can say that when we say that Christ is the head of the church, we can say that Christ governs the growth of his church and the activities of his church. So think about that. You know, for all of us who wonder what the church should be doing in the world today, The natural thing we should say, first and foremost, is this. What has Christ instructed us to do? We don't start the life of the church by, you know, canvassing the members and asking what we should do. Rather, the head instructs the body, not how are we going to be more relevant in our world or what new philosophies can we use to capture the attention of others. Rather, what has Christ called the church to do? You know, the best thing that any church can do is study every Bible passage that relates to the church and her activities and start being and doing that. Christ is the head, we're not. See, how do we come to any different idea than that? I mean, after all, according to the first part of this hymn, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the creator of all that exists. All things hold together in Christ. And if he hid his face, all things would immediately cease to exist. Christ is supreme over all creation, visible and invisible. What other philosophy then should attract us over such supremacy? And so again, if the church is to ask, what shall we be and do, is not the answer. How is the head of the church instructing us? How can we, with our limited view of things, even begin to plot the course of the church? Instead, should we not first and foremost allow the head to instruct us and to make that practical is not our first task. To learn all that scripture says about the church, her mission, her worship, her fellowship, and then act according to what Christ birthed when he created the church. He's the head of the body, the church. Those are profound words. How impactful, how they set the stage for the future growth of the church. Now let's go to the second phrase, and the second phrase is as follows, and it's in verse 18, the last part. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now in our study, we've already looked at the word firstborn and how that word functions in our Bible, and we noted that a firstborn was someone who is not necessarily born first, We also noted that in the Old Testament, a firstborn male had inherited the majority of the father's estate. So the firstborn became a synonym for anyone who was preeminent. Now, in the case of the phrase, the firstborn from the dead, the phrase surely has a twofold meaning. It is true that of all of humanity, Jesus' resurrection happened first before anyone else. Yes, there were in the Bible people who were raised from the dead before Jesus, but in every case, those people eventually died again. They were raised from the dead, all right, yet they continued to live in a sin-cursed world with a body that was still subject to death. But Jesus is the first human being up to now, the only human being who was ever raised with a body that belongs to the world to come. That's made his resurrection different from all the rest. It is the first of any resurrection of that kind.
0: The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcast, and publications. One of these resources includes the bi-monthly Truth and Life magazine. Each issue features engaging and thoughtful writings from Dr. John, laugh Phil Callaway, and guest authors discussing critical themes of faith. We encourage you to subscribe today to receive a free copy of our December issue mailed directly to your home. Now's the time to sign up if you haven't already. You won't want to miss the special Christmas Reflections coming in the December issue. To subscribe or for more information, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.
1: Jesus' resurrection is different from anything the world has ever seen, either before or up to now. That is, he was raised with a body that belongs to the era or the age to come. In the coming kingdom, men and women will no longer suffer from disease or weakness, degeneration due to aging or to death. The body to come will be an indestructible body. And when Jesus was raised from the dead, unlike, for instance, when Lazarus was raised from the dead, Jesus lives forever with the power of an indestructible life. And so in that sense, we can say he is the firstborn, that is, he is the first one who was raised that way. That is, the future the time when all things are made new, that time has already tumbled into the present time so that we already have one resurrection which anticipates all future resurrections, a firstborn or a first resurrection. But as we've noticed when we study the first part of this hymn, the word firstborn really isn't being used that way. We noticed that the Psalms spoke of David as the firstborn of all the kings of the earth, and so we noted that David certainly wasn't the first earthly king. Rather, we noticed that the firstborn meant that David is preeminent over all the world's kings. His kingship has supremacy over all others, and so following suit, When we said that the firstborn of all creation, we weren't saying that Jesus was born first or created first, because as a matter of fact, Colossians has already made it plain that Jesus is the uncreated creator. Rather, we're saying that Jesus has preeminence or that he is superior to all of the creation, that he has authority over all the creation, and indeed, he rules the created realm. Firstborn means he is supreme. Now, when that word is now used in regard to the resurrection, it seems natural to use the word in the same fashion. So the emphasis here is not the fact that Jesus was raised prior to all other bodily resurrections, but rather that he has authority over all resurrections. Listen to the words of Revelation 1, 17 and 18. Fear not. I am the first and the last, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. That is, as firstborn, the resurrection is under his authority. He is preeminent over every soul and over every resurrection. And as Revelation continues to explain, there's a first resurrection, which is a resurrection unto eternal joy, forever ruling and reigning with Christ. And then there is a second death. That's also a bodily resurrection followed by eternal damnation. By being the firstborn from among the dead, Jesus has supremacy over the eternal destiny of every living soul. So let's get back to where I began this message, the idea that if we only change the message of the church to make it more adaptable to contemporary tastes, could we not grow the church and make it larger? And to that I respond, it is possible to grow a religious organization and make it large and make it appealing to the contemporary mind. Indeed, any contemporary, or for that matter, any religious organization or religion or temple, church, mosque, meeting house, none of those have authority over the resurrection of people. The church can't offer you salvation. Only Jesus can do that. He's supreme over that, and he's not offering his supremacy to anyone else. So let's get back to this verse. Look again, verse 18b. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. In short, to say that he's the beginning is to say he's the alpha. He began all of life, and he will determine the destiny of all of life. To say he's preeminent in everything is to say that in the area where all of us care most about life, death, only Jesus reigns there. And that leads us to the last part of this hymn. And it's a bit of a mouthful. It's found in verses 19 to 20, so let's read it again. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's have a look at the first part of that passage. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. So let me put that in my own words. God the Father was filled with delight as his fullness, meaning his power, his wisdom, his eternal nature, his righteousness, as well as his love, his mercy, his wrath, his justice. All of that dwelt fully in the Son, even as it dwelt in the Father. Not one attribute that is true of the Father is not also true of the Son. Well, very good. The passage, if you have missed it before, is made ever more explicit. The Son shares fully in deity, even as the Father does. And all of this fills the Father with delight, even as it also fills the Son with delight. I know some of us get hung up on this. How can the Son be eternal? Because words like Father and Son make us think that one existed before the other. Well, yes, that's true in the realm of earthly things, because these are temporal things. But the Father is eternal. And if the Father is eternal, so also is the Son, for he is the eternal Son of the eternal God. I mean, you think of that in human terms. If you have a Son, that Son shares fully in your humanity, which means as you are temporal, so also is your Son. You began sometime, so also does your Son. But the eternal Father has a Son who shares in his eternal nature. Do you see that? I hope you do. It means we worship the Son even as we worship the Father. Both of them are eternal. Now, very good. Having made that point, Paul moves on to speak of the Son's authority to save. And in that vein, look very carefully at the words that are used here. The words are that the Father was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through the Son. Well, that's what the gospel teaches us. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Son took upon himself the sins of the whole world on the cross, suffering and dying for the sins of all of those whom the Father had called to himself. He died for us, and this was the Father's doing, a doing which is accomplished in the Son. Well, that's all fine and well, but here's a phrase that's troubled a great many people, and it's the phrase, all things that all things would be reconciled to the Father through the Son. And there are those who have used that phrase to argue for universalism. And the point here is to teach that all rebels to God, in the end, will be reconciled to God through Christ. Now, there are those who use this very passage to argue for that. Now, if that's what Paul was trying to communicate here, well, if he was, he would be contradicting what he had said everywhere else. For instance, Philippians three eighteen and 19. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Now hear that. Their end is not reconciliation with God. It's destruction. That's a stark reality of the gospel message. Heaven or hell await the entire human race, one or the other. Not everyone goes to heaven. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7-8, Paul writes that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, he will inflict, he says, vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel of Jesus. It's not just Paul says that. No one warned about hell more than Jesus. John five twenty nine. he spoke of the resurrection of the evil who await judgment. Matthew 7:13. he said that they would go to destruction and that there are many who would go there. Jesus warned about the fate of the wicked. The worm would not die. The fire would never be quenched. And not just Jesus and not just Paul, as if that weren't enough. Revelation describes it in great detail the eternal hellfire that awaits the wicked. Peter also has severe warnings in 2 Peter chapter 2. No, no. The clear teaching about eternal hell is abundant in the Scripture. And by the way, when Revelation says these go to eternal judgment and those to eternal life, listen, if eternal judgment doesn't mean forever, then eternal life doesn't mean forever either. But it does mean forever. And so here we are in Colossians 1.20. And the promise that the Father will reconcile all things to Christ. What does it mean? Well, I think it means exactly what it says. In the end of the day, all things will indeed be reconciled. I mean, all things will submit to God through the agency of Jesus. Some will submit grudgingly, even in terror, and God will reconcile their lives through the just sentence he imposes on them, while others who have already submitted to Jesus will find their long days of suffering are brought to an end when they are reconciled to God in heaven. So what have we learned? Well, the Church of Jesus always has a temptation, and that temptation is to put her future into her own hands. You know, in the Middle Ages, and even to this day, there were those who believe that the Church can administer salvation. That's false. The Church isn't preeminent, Christ is. Christ alone can save. And furthermore, some have argued that to advance our Church, we have to take the Church into our own hands. Listen. He's the head of the church. He's the head of salvation. He is the head of the resurrection of every single human being. It's the body of Christ. It's his salvation. He's preeminent over all. Whether we're talking about creation or whether we're talking about the salvation of every single person, there is one name that stands over all. Jesus Christ,
0: supreme in everything. John, help me to quickly understand the balance that's needed between Jesus and the church.
1: Yeah, uh, Ben, I think there is a balance. I mean, you know, those with a too low view of the church will say, I can just leave the church and be connected to Jesus. And those with too high a view of the church will say, well, the church gives me salvation, so they're looking to the church for their salvation rather than looking to Christ. Now, both views are wrong. Uh, We look only to Christ. He alone is supreme. The church is not supreme. However, he is the head of the church, meaning that we are his body, and therefore as his body— We belong to Christ through his church. So both are required, and it's important for us not to make the mistake that others have made in this regard.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series in the book of Colossians, The True Christian, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The Bible makes it clear. There is not a single passing moment where God is not present, active, sustaining. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. How comforting to know that God is always present. That is the theme of Back to the Bible Canada's upcoming calendar. Our 2024 In All Things Scripture Reading Calendar pivots around Dr. John Newfeld's upcoming book, Arriving in the New Year with stunning imagery, sneak peek quotes from Dr. John's book, and inspiring scripture, it reminds us that God is never far. We encourage you to request your free 2024 scripture wall calendar and follow along with a daily Bible reading plan inside. To request yours today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.